so important question, they Xbox or PlayStation? And I just went, PC. And they're like, oh, because one of them was PC, one of them was Xbox, one of them was PlayStation. So they're like, cool, you know, right. we have a deciding vote. And I went for PC and they right. were very impressed. My nerd cred just went through the roof. All right. Let's take the conversation down just a, a, a notch. <laughs> there was absolutely zero dollars in the budget for PC gaming. There was nothing in there to promote esports in Australia, although there should have been. Absolutely zero support for one of the fastest growing sporting franchises in the world, which is esports. Nothing. Not a not a penny. Rubbish. Welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, it's budget time. Before you recoil in horror and switch off the episode, you don't need to be a budget nerd to enjoy this one, mainly because this year's budget was oh so political, oh so short term, and frankly, such a crushing disappointment, even the Coalition's cheer squad in the Murdoch papers felt compelled to point out how instantly forgettable it was. Despite that, there's a lot to unpack about how this government sees its role and its responsibility to society and how that shapes our lives. For this one, Steve and I were joined by young Democrat Rhiannon Curnow, who scrutinised the budget on behalf of her generation and, unsurprisingly for this government, found it wanting. So sit back relax, and enjoy this post-mortem of the last budget of the 46th Parliament of Australia. Rhiannon, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. So, budget 2022, we've got the band back together to talk budget stuff because we're all nerds we, we acknowledge it straight up we're not ashamed we, we fly we fly our nerd flags proud um, badge of honor yeah and this one's oh i don't know how to begin to describe this one this one is a very strange budget like last year uh, yeah i felt like we went through the budget quite forensically and ripped it apart and and called out the government on all of the ways in which they fudged the, you know, the figures and Despite the 2021 budget allegedly being a women's budget, we sort of pulled it all apart and went, actually, it does jack for, for women. This budget is very different based. What did you, th- like, what were your initial thoughts when you watched it get handed down? This budget was in its entirety a grab bag of vote buying, to put it in a nutshell. Last year's budget had this vague sort of sense that it was trying to do something. It had uh, some money for aged care, which seemed aligned with the Royal Commission uh, recommendations. It wasn't as much funding as was recommended, but at least there was some there. There was some money for uh, women's programs. A lot of what was indicated for women was actually more uh, broad than that and not really for women. But there was, you know, like there was there was money there. There was some semblance of structure to it, some semblance of a plan to it. That that's all gone in 2022. This this last budget has 
no coherence to it. It has no sense of being anything other than an unashamedly vote-buying exercise. I I think in the most bizarre way, though, it's that they've cherry-picked these random groups of people that I suppose they believe are going to be their voters. It's not a it's not a converting budget in the way that we saw kind of last year where we were kind of had that very there was quite a strong debate around whether it was this labor budget, the social budget of it. Whereas this year we're not seeing that. We're seeing that this is targeted for for liberal voters ultimately. Or or at least where I would be interpreting that they see their their vote basis being. But it doesn't do a lot. No. I mean, it is a really cynical vote-buying exercise and it it's really revealing as to who they think they can convince to vote for them. Yes. And I, I would go out on a limb and say anybody under the age of 30 is not in that bracket. <laughs> unless yeah. you're unless you do, you're a do a trade mm. um, and then you might you may be within that bracket. There's a, there's a lot in there for tradies. And when you sort of look across the, the spread, there actually there is quite a bit in there for you know for those high earning tradies and a lot of trades are paying very well at the moment they're in very high demand their services are in demand and the labor is in high demand and so tradies are pushing into the highest income tax bracket their fuel excise will help them disproportionately like a fuel excise cut of 22 cents per liter uh, for the next 6 months will help people driving around those large utes and those large SUVs, those subsidised trade vehicles that we see, the Mercedes ute that you see showing up on construction sites these days, which I still can't wrap my head around, but more power to them. And then the apprenticeship program, which sees, I think, $15,000 a year subsidised on the salary of an apprentice, saving on the expenditure of those same tradies when they hire junior workers. So there's a lot in there. Similarly, a lot of them will be small businesses, so they'll they'll be able to claim $1.20 for every dollar that they spend on training up to I think $100,000 a year. Like these are all these are all things that will help that group. But that group has been shifting towards the Liberal Party for the last decade. And I'm not sure they really needed help solidifying their vote, but they got it. Yeah, because, I mean, and, and it's interesting because the whole tradies thing two decades ago were traditional liberal, uh, not liberal, labour voters, and then they became Howard's battlers and now they're sort of Morrison's best friends. And I think Catherine Murphy had a really great article a few months ago about the people who will vote for Morrison and they are young men at risk of voting for Labor and that budget makes it like it's in neon lights exactly how how badly Morrison wants to reassure those people that they need to stick with him. But it plays into the other aspect of uh, Scott Morrison's sort of public persona as well though the guy who goes to the footy who follows the sharks you know who just wants to support his footy team who'll have a beer and a pie at the game you know just an ordinary guy from the, from Dad the, next the, the yeah, you know, like that that guy wants to connect with that group. The thing is, though, as I say, I, I I think that job was done. I think they're reasonably firmly sold if they were going to be sold, and the rest of it seems really ill conceived. Let's let's put it in those sorts of terms. 
And even, even more than last year's budget will fail to deliver any kind of lasting impact. And not least because there's an election coming in six or seven weeks' time and they're likely to lose and their budget's likely to be meaningless anyway. But even were it to be enacted, so if you look at it as a plan for the future of the country and a vision for our priorities and all the rest of it, there's just nothing long-term in it. No, it's literally a vision for the next six or seven weeks. Crikey, uh, Bernard Keane from Crikey said this budget becomes, regardless of who wins the election, this budget becomes irrelevant 6pm on election night. And Greg Jericho from The Guardian said the budget was a, it was one of those really interesting or sort of bizarre phenomenons where the budget was literally forgotten about 30 seconds after Josh Frydenberg got done delivering it. It was so quiet this year for the budget from, from my perspective. Yeah, you know, if you're very – you are switched into the news and everything. Last year with the budget, I felt that I was – bombarded with, you know, it's a women's budget, it's a Labor's budget, it's this, it's, there were so many comments on how we're recovering from COVID and this, and it was, I got so much information around it. And this year, it, it was like crickets immediately after it was, it kind of happened. I literally mentioned it to somebody else, you know, actually I was saying I was doing this and they went, oh, I didn't even realize that came out this week. I went, oh, <laughs> we're on kind of different wavelengths, but it was just not something relevant other than I think the the fuel exercise because everybody I know has been going, oh my God, the cost of fuel. I was quite excited yesterday. I, I bought fuel. It was $1.77. I never thought I would say that that was an exciting thing, but it really was. Apparently one of my, my local ones were selling for $1.54, which I don't know how they're even doing that yet, but I, I, you know, it was very exciting. But to me, that's the most, that's the biggest thing that's kind of come out of this. Everything else, there was the changes to the parental leave, which, you know, for some parents, that's going to be a significant thing. I actually think for yourself, Steve, as a, a father, that's probably a more significant change. But otherwise, maybe the defense was the only other really big section. And mm. that one's like, well, we've kind of got this war going up it's like well yes we've got defense investment okay it just was this very quiet here's the budget and it what's surprising about that is it's a confusing attitude in the in the lead up to an election where your budget could have been that thing that does convince new voters but it doesn't even seem to have done that it's this very we'll see what happens. Yeah. Because and, and the budget was framed by the media as the government's last chance to sort of save itself in the lead up to the election and sort of save its political fortunes. Mm. And you would think that it would be the big, big vision, big nation, not even nation building, but, but the illusion of having a nation building vision for the country mm. that they want to spur and, and as you said, convince people to stick with them. And they sort of script it. They, like I said, like it, it, it's it's incoherent. It is. It's a bit of a mess. There's no sort of overarching narrative beyond Labor can't be trusted on anything, which is standard boilerplate for the coalition. And this, as, as you said, Rihanna, this, this sort of khaki election that they've been desperately trying to manufacture. I mean, Peter Dutton must have gotten down on his knees in gratitude when Putin invaded Ukraine. And actually started a war because all of a sudden he actually has an actual real life war to bang the defense drum on as, as opposed to trying to manufacture one with China. He really does. The, the ability to point to the uh, 
conflict in Ukraine, the aggression of Russia, the uncertain global conditions that come from that did a lot for the coalition. And I don't want to make light of the fact that it's not doing good things for Ukraine. It's a serious issue. People are getting hurt. Cities are being destroyed. Infrastructure is being destroyed. And it will take decades to rebuild that country once this thing is over. From a, a political point of view locally, Peter Dutton would have been extremely, extremely pleased, as you say, to not have to try and manufacture a conflict with China or raise a shimmer of a, uh, a conflict with China, but instead could point to a real conflict and real consequences. And then they've spent the, the last five weeks trying to sort of stretch that bow as far as they can to indicate that well, look look at what's happening to the disruption in gas supply in, in Europe. You know, we, we don't want to see that at home. So we should absolutely invest in more gas extraction in Australia to shore up our, our local reserves. Otherwise, you know, gas shock like we've seen in Europe. That kind of thing has, has absolutely taken front, front of stage. That overarching narrative for me in this budget came through you could see it sort of each time Josh Frydenberg introduced a new uh, area of the budget, whether it was on health spending or, you know, defence or, or whatever it might be. There's this idea that at some point in the past, the government put in place a plan. That's arguable. But there was this sort of narrative that we, we put in place that plan. That plan is working, also arguable. And here's what we're going to do to continue on that plan. And therefore, the implicit part is that don't interrupt the plan and and we should be given more time to continue with our plan rather than it being stopped midstream and, and handed off to, to Labor. Now, none of that rings true. Like the idea that there's some national plan would come as a surprise to a lot of Australians because there's no real evidence of it, unless that plan is to try and divert public money into private hands and concentrate it into as fewer hands as possible. If that's the plan, then fair enough. That one's fairly obvious. But aside from that, there is no vision for Australia as, uh, you know, like a, a future better place. There is no sense of, of what we want this country to become and the opportunity for it and the potential of it as it appears in the budget papers. There's no sense of that. And the idea that there is a plan, that it's working, for whom is questionable and that therefore we shouldn't interrupt it, seem to be the only part of the budget that was coherent at all. The rest of it seemed to be, and here's a little bit for you, and here's a little bit for you, and here's a little bit for you. And I think, Rhiannon, to your point around, it didn't seem to make a big splash. Normally in the budget, we get this, and who are the winners, and who are the losers, and who came out ahead, and, and who's gone backwards. Mm. And there weren't really any losers because it was deliberately not set up that way. It was deliberately set up so that everyone's a winner because there's an election that's going to be announced in, you know, three or ten days or so. And I remember the the budget last year because it you know, had had to be the women's budget because Morrison standing with women had collapsed so dramatically last year. And you know, we put the lie to it being a women's budget last year, but even for shall we call them, you know, women's stuff. A lot of the stuff that was actually put into that budget last year hasn't actually come into effect yet. 
in in this you know it's not even in this budget but in in this year 2022 a lot of those measures still haven't actually started no. and in the in the women's budget statement which to their credit they have reintroduced after Tony Abbott scrapped it as you said it, it's that narrative of well this is the strong plan we have for keeping women safe and securing their economic future and all this sort of stuff and it's like yeah but you're still not doing any of it <laughs> yeah, they, they, the the pittance the pittance out of out of a you know six hundred twenty five billion dollar budget, they're tossing you know a couple of hundred million dollars here and a couple of hundred million dollars there on things, and for measures that haven't even begun from last year yet, and it, so we we're still in terms of actual outcomes and and boots on ground doing stuff on women's safety, domestic violence, trying to lift women's economic participation, they. St- literally haven't even started anything yet. It, it's it's bizarre. You're still seeing the same levels of domestic violence. You're still seeing the same levels of murder by intimate partners, and that is predominantly violence against women by men. You're still seeing the same levels of gender pay inequity. Uh, you're still seeing the same issues around retirement incomes, Women over 50 are still the fastest growing homeless cohort, you know, or, or, or people experiencing homelessness. Women over 50 remain the fastest growing cohort. Like any of the things that you would look to and say, well, how successful was last year's budget in addressing those issues? And unfortunately, we're still sitting here 12 months later going, still waiting. It's exactly right. We're, we're, we're still waiting. And the money that we're seeing this year is actually less than last year. Of course it is. We did actually know that was going to happen. One of the the kind of key things from from last year was a lot of them were like, after this happens, we'll begin funding in this, or we'll, we'll, there's this little initial bit for two years, and then we'll, oh, we intend on doing this afterwards. But there's a lot of that stuff was very much delayed, and I think in this year's budget, a lot of it is this very, it is short focus. It is this is what we're doing for the next year. There's those couple of you know longer term infrastructure development kind of things, which I think was their only attempt at any sort of climate change response. Um, Yeah, that's a a whole other elephant in the room. But um, it it was very much a temporary budget. Mm. I I will give them credit for one thing. The one thing they did do for women that uh, it's not not necessarily like – that there's a sliver of good in that they um, – so previously women got 18 weeks of paid parental leave and men got two weeks of annual uh, of paid parental leave and with a, with a use it or lose it sort of catch to it. And what they've done, they've sort of combined that together into 20 weeks of leave, which the family can choose to use as they see fit. And if you're a single parent, you now get 20 weeks of leave, which is great. That is the one good thing for single parents. For couples – it's actually a backward step because removing the use it or lose it clause on that two weeks of, of parental leave for what I'm going to call the secondary caregiver, yeah. so as to, to you know yeah. pull gender out of it, means that it's most likely that the primary caregiver will take the full 20 weeks of leave. That's right. And that is actually an incredibly regressive step because there's, there's, there's sort of studies from across like 28 countries around the world have proven that you need to put a, a use-it-or-lose-it portion of time into the start of a young family's life to ensure that both parents are active and engaged as parents and that sets up that family to have an active and, you know, I'm going to kind of bring gender back into it, to have an active and engaged 
dad parenting their kids going forward. Because if you don't force dads out of the workforce for a couple of weeks or a month when their child is born to bond with that child, engage with that child, become a parent, everything falls to primarily the mother and the dad just goes back to work. And we fall into this archaic breadwinner versus caregiver dynamic in that family for the next 20 years. And I think the logistical setup is, is that if you have paid leave for 20 weeks instead, across your family, you're going to have that, you want to take that 20 weeks. But really what doesn't happen then is that that secondary caregiver, or even if you divvy it up, if you go 10 weeks and 10 weeks, chances are, I like, you're not going to have those double up at a point because then you actually lose extra time that you could have had that the the baby at home, I suppose, you know. Mm. Whereas now, yeah, it is going to be either just one person doing it or you don't actually have that relationship within the family unit because it's trying to extend the time frame in which you can use the parental leave. Yeah. What they should have done was given both parents 20 weeks to use as they see fit, and if they don't use it, they lose it, whether whether you be the primary caregiver or the secondary caregiver. And so you'd end up with hypothetically 40 weeks of leave that you can mix and match and balance out and, you know, but each of you has to take 20 weeks. Yeah, and look, 40 weeks of paid parental leave is a lot more than what we currently provide, which is the 18 plus 2 and, and now sort of 20 combined. It's still less than a lot of countries in the OECD. It's still yeah. not it's still not a lot. It's more than some places, but it would still not be considered excessive in Scandinavian countries, for example, where they get fifty two weeks of yeah. paid parental leave. There's a there's a few other things that happen as a result. So one of the one of the changes that the superannuation industry were pushing for, and I know um, uh, rest was was one of them, um, and I, I saw a statement from them on Wednesday. But this this uh, idea that uh, paid parental leave attracts superannuation was put forward as a way of helping close that gap in retirement uh, positions for for women in particular. That didn't happen. So, like, it, we, we're perpetuating that gap. And I think working women uh, who've had children are something like 30 uh, or 35% worse off in terms of their average retirement incomes or their superannuation balance at retirement than men uh, and men with similar qualifications and, and this kind of thing. That's that's one aspect of it. And, and that part of it was disappointing that we didn't get that part pushed through. The other side of it, though, is that we have this expectation in Australian society, and you mentioned it before, that we've got sort of a breadwinner and a caregiver. The caregiver tends to be a female or a, or a woman. They do tend to be gendered roles in Australia, and we accept that as being normal, even though it's not. It's it's absolutely a social construct. And we had the opportunity in tinkering with the paid parental leave scheme to try and break that societal norm. We had the opportunity to say, it's, it's going to be 20 weeks, but it has to be evenly uh, split. So men need to take, or the father or the secondary caregiver need to take half of it, and the other half of it goes to the primary caregiver. That's the way that it's going to be. And what that does is it sends a message that both parents, when there are two parents, they are equal partners in raising children, that their role is not gendered, that there is an expectation that 
they do be able to feed a baby, that they do be able to change their nappies, that they do be able to comfort them when they are distressed and change their clothes and bathe them and all of those sorts of things, that that's part of what being a parent is. And it's not naturally a woman's role and it's not naturally a man's role to go to the, to the workplace. And that could have been addressed. It's one of the things that you see in those Scandinavian countries that have those rules in place, places like uh, Norway and, and Denmark, where you need to take at least three months of leave as the secondary uh, parent. Those norms that say it's acceptable for a woman to leave the office early when their child's sick, but it would be frowned upon if a man did it. And, and, and that absolutely happens. You know, a father in the workplace who says, I need to go home early today because the school called and my child's sick would be looked upon as, oh, like that's, that's kind of weird. Why isn't your wife doing that? Because we accept those societal norms. So in terms of like a budget being used as a tool to frame society and to set us up to be the type of country that we want to be, that was a missed opportunity. That was something that we could have done, that a lot of people would like to see done and that we didn't do, unfortunately. And I want us to stress to people that we're not sort of being socially, like we're not trying to social engineer this, you know, socialist utopia sort of thing. These are norms that are already prevalent in society. And it's simply government catching up to them. And I'll, I'll use an example from my work. We, uh, one of one of one of my teammates was saying that he had to work from home for a week because his wife was away and he was babysitting. And before any of the women on the team had an opportunity to say anything, the men on the team it was very you know it was friendly and polite, and we we made it in a joking way. But the men in the team ripped into him and went, "Dude, it's not babysitting when it's your kid. You are parenting." That language that is still used, I think, is indicative of the, these broader social norms that we're getting. And unfortunately, whilst I, I do think this is one step towards it, that there is an opportunity now for a more equitable distribution of leave for a primary and a secondary caregiver. I, I think there's an opportunity there, and I don't want to detract from that. Is one step. Is it the best step that could have been made? No. But what we still do see is this very much a language of it's men as the sec, particularly men, that they are secondary caregiver, that they are babysitting, they are filling in for the role of the wife. But it is coming back to setting up those relationships from first and foremost, where you're not just coming in while the wife can go have a shower in and in the night, you know, no, no, I'm home to now care for my child alongside you. It's great that in that situation that you do have men standing up and challenging a lot of those notions. And that is fantastic to hear. But ultimately, that's still the attitude. Hopefully you'd see an end to the response to that scenario, uh, Rhiannon, of, you know, the, the, the guy coming home from work and beginning to take care of, the, of yeah. their child. <clears throat> that that yeah. language that, that people would object to that and go, but he's been working all day. Yeah. As, as though the wife hasn't, right? Like mm. as though being yeah. at home, being a carer is not yeah. working. Absolutely. And I think, um, look, I am seeing it within my generation. There are kind of these shifts in it. My cousins went and took uh, him and his best friend went and took their kids to a Wiggles concert together. Mm. And it was like this, this bro thing, though, of them like dancing with their, their little boys now, like taking them to the Wiggles concert. And my mum was reflecting on it going that when I had you, I actually took my sister to the Wiggles concert and I could not even imagine my dad or your uncle going to those concerts. It just wasn't a thing that happened. But now that is just something that is increasingly normalised and, you know, they're filming the 
kids there and that sort of thing. And you can see that there is, is starting to be this much more equitable distribution between the role of men and women there. And so what we're seeing legislatively to me is actually starting to be behind where we actually are are moving towards socially. Um, And so that's why this, I think, is an insufficient move, is that it's not actually even meeting where I think we are up to, Mm -hmm. but it's also not future thinking to develop further social change. Yes. No, you nailed it because, um, look, I'm going to woman-splain for a second, but (laughs) I think men and particularly, you know, younger generations of men are looking to be given permission to leave the workforce and be parents, you know, take their kids to the Wiggles concert, which is awesome. I love that story. And we need to give them the legislative framework to nudge companies and to nudge that cultural change along and normalise all of that. And I think it's a reflection of how this government not just sees women but sees men because, let's face it, the coalition are dominated by men and they're dominated by men who, thanks to being politicians and thanks to being in careers that require them to travel a lot and to be absent from the home a lot, their, their wives are essentially stay-at-home mums looking after, you know, raising these very important families that when the political career is over they they, they go home to spend more time with. And it shapes, the, I think, the way they view the world. They look at the world they're still in that 1950s framework of, well, I'm very important and I go to Canberra and I run the country and my wife stays home and raises our children. Yeah. I think this is where we're getting down to the heart of what is actually a flaw in an overall parliamentary, it's an overall parliamentary issue, particularly prevalent within the Liberal National Co- Coalition, but I think more broadly across parliament is that we still appear to have this idea of there is the the working but also much older generation too that a lot of the we do not have a younger voice coming through within parliament it is still very much a historical approach to a lot of these changing values that we are seeing more prevalent within the rest of society that there is this kind of micro antique version of of Australian society and they're, they're running to try and catch up with it. Are they though? Are they trying yeah. to catch up? Oh, it's they? not running. It's not running. <laughs> running? It's, not, it's, it's, it's somebody shoved something in front of them that they went, oh, yeah. I don't agree with. I possibly we might have to do something about that or I will have to leave this place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, you know, I, I've just had a cattle prod, prod um, po- you know, um, poke me in the backside and I've, I've sort of shuffled along to try and catch up. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I, yeah. I, I also want to pick up on on that idea of the, the the coalition's gendered view of Australian society, and you can see it in some of the other decisions that they've made. So they talk a lot about trying to drive jobs and job creation in Australia, and and they point to their investment in certain industries as the way in which they're doing that. And and the construction industry and their expenditure on infrastructure and transport projects is one of the areas that they point to and say, look, we're, in, we're investing in infrastructure, we're investing in good, honest, blue-collar jobs, we're in supporting Australian workers, and they talk about it in those terms. But the Australia Institute has sort of looked at where investment in different industries leads to jobs and I think for each million dollars invested in construction, you get a job. It's probably for a man and sort of 0.3 jobs for women. And that's sort of the return that you get for every million dollars invested in 
an infrastructure project. If you invest a million dollars, though, in education, that creates 10 jobs for women and four jobs for men. And if what you were really trying to do was create jobs rather than photo opportunities, you'd be investing in education. Like that million dollars you would be putting into education. But it seems that because that leads to women's employment and 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 work for work for people in jobs that doesn't look as good, you know, you can't wear high vis in a university environment. You just look silly. It doesn't get the kind of investment that you would otherwise get. And so this notion of investing for jobs seems to really mean investing for men's jobs in male-dominated industries rather than really looking at, well, how would we spur jobs growth in Australia and investing in those sectors? And also investing in the sectors that need the jobs. Like one of the things that a few commentators picked up on with this budget in particular is they're throwing billions of dollars at infrastructure investment when the construction industry is already tight as a drum. Like The demand for construction is through the roof and it's getting to the point where state governments are actually delaying projects because they can't, you know, the cost overruns are so high. Yeah. The, 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 those projects are becoming uneconomical and that they're not going to get the return on investment they want. So they're sort of delaying them until the construction industry cools down a bit. Hmm. And the federal government's coming in over the top going, Here's all the infrastructure More investment money. because we're creating ma- we're creating jobs for men, and at the same time, they gut like because it's not just that they're not investing in education; they're ripping money out of invest uh, in education. I mean, the last two years, education was I think the third biggest export industry in this country. It was a net. It was a big you know, one. Uh, yeah, it was huge. Like it was huge income stream for the country. And they didn't just abandon it during the pandemic. They actively ripped out, like ripped it out from the roots to try and kill it. Like I said, it's not even that they're just sort of not just just letting it total along and, and and they're not investing in it. They're ripping investment out of it and taking and destroying jobs. I mean, every time anyone talks about, I mean, I know we will get to climate change, but every time everyone talks about phasing out of coal, the coalition loses their minds at over all the jobs we're going to lose out of the coal mining industry. Yeah. And it's like there's five times as many, well, we lost five times as many jobs out of the education industry during the pandemic than actually exist in coal at the moment. Yeah. But those jobs apparently didn't matter, but the high-vis ones in coal did. Yeah. It gets worse the more you dig into those numbers. So last year the Australia Institute did a report into where people are employed in the coal industry and the, you know, the, the ability for people to migrate from a job in coal into a job somewhere else. And they identified maybe only 800 jobs that would be difficult to replace, where that particular person and their skills would be hard to transition to another industry. Most of coal and and both mining and energy generation are engineering-type jobs that are applicable to a whole range of different industries. An engineer employed in coal mining could easily shift to lithium mining, for example, or, or another type of mine. Power generation could easily shift to other types of power generation. You know, those sorts of uh, engineering jobs are quite easily transferable. And then there's a relatively small number of specialist underground coal mining technician uh, or technical type jobs, six to 800 of them only, that you would find, find difficult to replace. 
If you compare that then to the university sector, only the university sector as far as education is concerned, during the pandemic, the university sector lost 27,000 jobs. And those jobs are difficult to replace. Like people who are employed in universities aren't easily transferable into other industries. You know, education is pretty much where they're at. And if they're not directly in education, then they're research scientists. And those jobs are even harder to transition into other areas, especially when the sorts of non-university R&D centres like the CSIRO are also being underfunded. So mm. it's, it's, it's worse the, the more you look at it. And I know there was some funding uh, allocated this year around improving our R&D capability, uh, putting money back into scientific research in Australia, some of it in universities, some of it with the CSIRO but all of it is targeted at specific opportunities for commercialization of research. And anyone who works in university research and R&D more broadly will tell you that a lot of research is undertaken without a clear benefit in mind. Mm. Um, it doesn't have clear commercial uh, opportunities when it's first conceived, and some of it never will. Some of it is only there to help improve our understanding of the way in which the world works and to explore it as an intellectual exercise. And that has value to us as a society, not to this government, though. Yeah, and that kind of research leads to breakthroughs down the track. A lot of that research is foundational stuff that needs to be done, as you said, to expand our knowledge of how the world works and expand our knowledge of science, which then leads to commercialisable breakthroughs down the track. I mean, on the, the last uh, pod episode that we published with Gregoire, we talked about the mRNA breakthrough yes. and how that literally took decades of yes. one woman fighting, you know, not, having, having faith that she, like, she knew that breakthrough was there to be found and she spent decades fighting to get it. And only after that... Was she able to commercialise it and, you know, were, were we able to get mRNA vaccines during a global pandemic? And it was really only when the pandemic hit that everyone went, oh, shit, that's, that's, that's what we need. We need, mm. we need that. Yeah. If, if Dr. Carrico had not spent decades finding that one particular breakthrough, we'd probably still be in lockdown, frankly. It just makes me angry. Yeah. That is one of the things that they actually did end up investing in then, that Victoria hopefully going to, you know, become the, the first place in the Southern Hemisphere to, to develop their, to produce the mRNA vaccine, which is nice. It's super useful coming out of it, I suppose, <laughs> in case we have another pandemic sometime soon. And we will, Rihanna. We, we, yeah, we will. will. No, it is, it is a genuinely, there is a, um, it is a good investment. Could we have done it last year? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but yeah. in, in recognising all those things, that is there. Yeah. At the same time, we aren't investing in the research capability to develop new things to manufacture in that mRNA facility. We're entirely reliant on other people to do the R&D, to come up with new vaccines, to come up with new medicines that we might eventually manufacture. We, we've cut funding and refused funding for our own research into how that technology might get used. And, and let's not forget that the government was drag-kicking and screaming to mRNA vaccines as a whole in the anyway, first place. You know, yeah. like they absolutely, they literally put all of their baskets into the AstraZeneca traditional vaccine, which 
don't get me wrong, is an excellent vaccine. Rhiannon's had it. but I couldn't you know, get the second one, but that aside. <laughs> you know, like in the height of the pandemic, when you know, one of the limitations on that vaccine was that, that ideally you had to have 12 weeks between shots, whereas the mRNA vaccines was three weeks. And the government just, like, they wouldn't invest in vaccines, never mind in production of them. It's just that, you know, and we, we, we have talked about this a lot about just the literal short-term thinking of the government. So, we, again, we, we spoke about this in terms of quarantine facilities on in on the previous podcast and how we still don't have any. Everything with this government, they're a day late, they're a dollar short, and they literally have to be drag-kicking and screaming to things that should just never have been contestable in the first place. It should have already happened, basically. So let's, let's pick up on another example of that. And I, I, I want to come back to infrastructure for a minute because I think mm. this is a really good example of a lost opportunity. So we, we mentioned earlier the government has put more money into infrastructure. I think they announced $17 billion in additional spending on infrastructure. Budget papers cited $225 billion in projects underway at different levels of government across the country. We mentioned that the New South Wales government came out the day before the budget and said we're putting a hold on some projects because demand is so high, we can't find people, we can't find equipment. The cost of that is is too much. It's not a responsible use of taxpayer money, all, all of those sorts of things. The federal government in the budget announced additional spending anyway. And I think there's about $110 or $115 billion in total infrastructure spending over the next 10 years indicated in the budget. Yeah, 120. In the end, 120. What we have, though, in the backdrop, so this budget must be looked at in the backdrop or against the backdrop, not just of a pending election, but also of climate change. And when you look at spending on infrastructure, we're talking about spending on concrete, steel, trucks, heavy equipment, and all of those things have a carbon footprint to them. So if we're going to spend money on infrastructure, then we should take the opportunity to address that carbon emission footprint, look at the embodied carbon in our infrastructure projects, and go, how do we use that significant spending? $120 billion sounds like a lot of money because it is. If we're going to spend that kind of money, can we use that investment to kickstart local uh, initiatives in things like low emission steel, low emission concrete? Can we shift our construction industry from diesel power and heavy machinery to electric vehicles, like battery-operated, battery-powered electric vehicles, to hydrogen, you know, like any of that kind of stuff. Can even a small portion of that $120 billion be dedicated? Can we put in place uh, incentives to shift to lower emission technologies and lower, um, lower emission methods and materials in the construction industry? Can we push for... Um, reductions targets in the way in which, you know, in the levels of embodied carbon in our infrastructure projects. And there's nothing, there is not a single thing over the next decade that would help improve that bottom line in terms of the carbon emissions that come from that massive infrastructure spend. Nothing at all. Just such a wasted opportunity. And also speaking of wasted opportunities, on top of all of that, I, only a tiny fraction of these projects that the government has sort of put forward for infrastructure spending are actually on the Infrastructure Australia 
this is good for the country list of infrastructure projects that need to be done. Yeah, I think it's even less than that. Like it's small. And this is what gets me is like a lot of these projects are not what what previous sort of politicians have called shovel ready. You know, like these things are not going to get started for possibly a decade, but we're throwing money at them now because it looks great on paper. What as well is happening in this investment in infrastructure? I'm not going to pretend I know every single investment or of infrastructure, but these kind of primary ones that they're looking at at the moment. So we've got kind of the Melbourne intermodal terminal package, and then there's a series of kind of faster rails. And then actually for yourself, Alana, you know, you, you're getting Metronet, which is, I suppose, would be very exciting for Western Australia. It's actually very exciting. But to yeah. me, when I'm looking through a lot of these, majority of them are, yes, you need them, improvements on already existing things. But what they don't actually set up other than potentially Metronet, is actually this kind of expansion of our rail network. There is a little bit around more dams and irrigation, expanding it up in Queensland, I believe. But majority of these aren't actually an expansion. They're they're an improvement, but they're not an expansion. So what that means is we still have these very centralised things that we've already had issues with. We're not actually giving increased opportunities to reduce rail, to reduce road transport or anything like that. We are still relying very heavily. And even in these rail systems, you know, we aren't moving to greener or 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 more energy effective kind of solutions. And so exactly what you're saying, Steve, but it is so clear that in these, what we have chosen or what the government has chosen to invest in in this infrastructure pipeline for the next 10 years, it's still not forward thinking. It's still not Mm. growth driving. And it's still not, we've, you know, we've got massive amounts of development, even I I know out into my kind of way to this new Sydney airport um, at Badgerys Creek. And we're still not even seeing that sort of stuff coming through. We're We're not seeing improvements in making our cities more walkable. We're not seeing improvements in making our cities more rideable. We're not seeing investments that would encourage people to use electric bicycles, electric scooters, electric motorbikes even, you know, all of those things that would actually improve the livability of our cities, improve the air quality of our cities, allow for greater uh, tree cover in our cities because you don't need to worry so much about clearing the tree canopy to allow cars and things to go through. Like all of that stuff has been forgotten. Like none of it, none of it is in here. Also focusing on that that city area, beyond even the, the climate benefit you know in terms of our our climate action response even beyond that in terms of trying to get people people back into cities Mm -hmm. there's a state element to this as well I I know in Sydney you know there's all these grants that keep getting given out at random intervals to get you back into the city and invest and spending at restaurants and it ends up getting spent at KFC and Red Rooster and all those places that Mm -hmm. need investment but what would actually happen if we made cities more accessible is that we would actually have that natural recovery i know going into the city now like for me to actually go in one it's a two-hour train trip at the moment because we've had so many shutdowns and everything it's a two-hour train trip and most of them actually shut down at 10 p.m or that you you can't actually get anything i don't want to go into the city i don't want to go into the city i don't really want to go out outside of my my local area because it is not accessible by safe walking areas by public transport and and then you look at the environmental impacts of that. Yeah. Again, I say the the way in which we're choosing to invest our money is not forward thinking. So we we would have had the opportunity to say, 
let's invest in regional infrastructure so that we can take pressure off our urban centres and encourage people to relocate into regional communities and take their work with them. So if we've learnt nothing from the last two years, we've at least learned the fact that a lot of white-collar work can be done very effectively remotely, that a lot of office work can be remote work, and that a job for in, in the city doesn't need to be there. We've absolutely demonstrated that the connection between work and the workplace for a lot of industries can and should be broken, and that those workers can and would love to relocate into regional areas. Now, there are, there are issues associated with that, but if we were to invest in telecommunications infrastructure across regional and rural Australia, that would actually encourage people to take those white-collar jobs into those rural communities. It takes their salary and their spending capability into those regional communities. If you talk about, you know, what are we going to do to transition away from fossil fuels, well, in a lot of communities that are dependent on fossil fuel mining and extraction, the ability to actually have those white-collar uh, workers part of the local community um, and spending money there instead of being reliant on that those, those mining jobs, that would be a way to help that transition. There was a small bit put towards that. There was $1.3 put towards telecommunications over the next six years. Yeah, that's Just to remind us, though, that that is in comparison to $120 billion in our infrastructure package. You know, it's, it's we are getting like literally 1%, 1% into, t- yep, yes, 1%. I'm making sure my math is right. I'm not a math student. Yeah. Um, but that our telecommunications is 1% of that infrastructure development. What happens if we just pour it 2% in, where instead of 8,000 kilometres of regional transport routes, so primarily we're talking about kind of, I would be assuming that's a lot of our, you know, again, reinforcing in roads, basically, if that's our regional transport routes, we're not talking about the trains. But once again, we're talking about such a minimal amount of what we're sitting here going, surely that would just be practical. $200 million a year is less than what a company like Qantas spends on IT in a year. And there is another $480 million to improve MBN infrastructure, which it, I don't have a time frame for that one. Oh, um, again. And, 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 and again, again though, that's We're still talking about, we're talking about under $2 billion is their total yeah. investment in the digital economy. It should be possible in a country like Australia to drive between any regional town or any regional centre and receive coverage mm-hmm. it, it should be possible I and it's not and it's driving from my house to uni from my mm-hmm. house to uni i can't get service and i'm 30 minutes from one of one of the largest city centers i, I was out driving and this was years ago on, on a project for for the the bank i was working for at the time and we were driving out in the country near geraldton and we're driving past a wind farm. The irony was we were, you know, you know, being that far rural, we, we had no coverage. But all of a sudden we started getting text messages and things coming through on our phones because it was bouncing off the wind turbines. We were getting the signal that way. So more wind, people. <laughs> but um, I, I, I want to bring it back to you mentioned MetroNet, which is a completely great, great project. I just want to point out that that project was initiated and originally funded by a state government. It is underway at the moment. Supreme Minister for Life, Mark McGowan, 
announced just I think just yesterday that the first test train had run through the Armadale to Forestfield link part of the, the train package that, that they that they were building. And this is part of our infrastructure to actually have a train out to the Perth airport. So for anybody living outside of WA, I realise it's all meaningless, but for WA people it's quite a significant achievement. All the federal government has done is come along and gone, here's some extra money for Metronet. Yay. And go us. Go us, you know, yeah. And of course Mark McGowan being very savvy political operator that he is, isn't going to turn around and go, no, we're fine, we don't need, you know, we don't need federal funding. He obviously will take it, but it's not brand new nation-building infrastructure. He's literally just shoveling more money against stuff that was going to get built regardless. Yeah. Okay, I just get frustrated because this, this coalition government from Abbott through to Morrison have all been about, oh, we are the infrastructure government, except they're not, except every single budget. They're either spending less money than they claim or, you know, they're fudging it so that it looks like a huge amount of money but it's spread over 10 years and realistically anything longer than the forward estimates, which is four years, is just a boondoggle. It's never going to end up anywhere. And then they're going ahead and spending it on the wrong shit, you know? Uh, and look, I, I want to come back to something Rhiannon mentioned earlier, speaking about spending money on the wrong shit. Um, we, we do have an investment on dams and water infrastructure, which everybody other than Barnaby Joyce acknowledges won't do anything useful. So I think there is about $2 billion in uh, water infrastructure spend. It includes some dams in central Queensland. Nobody absolutely nobody other than Barnaby Joyce. And I, I mean that from the irrigators themselves, the people who might build the dams all the way through to the uh, the water authority, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, the local traditional owners of, of the land on which the dams will be built. Everybody agrees that it's a bad idea that won't provide any material benefit and will actively do damage. Barnaby Joyce's response to that when he was posed these questions were, I don't care. Oh, I mean, Barnaby, allegedly the country's greatest retail politician. We need a segment on Barnaby. Oh, we do. For, 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 for kicks, but yeah. yeah. We should we should dedicate a whole episode to Barnaby. I, I feel like the, you know, since his return to the Nationals' leadership, which, again, is an episode unto itself, it's like he's – it's not so much that he's given up, but it – He's, he's given up pretending. The naked grab for money to not just feather his own nest, uh, which is one aspect, but simply to shower money on the electorates for Nationals MPs. And it, it's not even a cynical vote-buying exercise. It is literally just a vote-buying exercise. It's ex- absolutely extraordinary. I mean, then the Nationals, I mean, commentators have been saying for years that the Nationals are not a political party. They're just a group of grifters out for themselves. And since Barnaby has returned to the Nationals' leadership, it's literally, they're not just saying the quiet part out loud, they're doing the quiet part out loud. Much more overt. Yeah. It's, uh, anyway, shall we talk about climate change? I was just about to say, so <laughs> Like we said before, the bit of the elephant in the room, but it's not really. It's like an elephant-shaped hole that's in this budget. So, obviously, last year, November last year, was the COP26. Um, oh, yes. COP26. Gosh. Um, that feels like, I was gonna say, that, feels oh, like that happened three years ago. Like, I know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that did happen only last year, and this was kind of the first budget post that. And there was some anticipation around that we would see – something that actually reflected a commitment to that. 
I don't know why we did. That was it's probably ignorant <laughs> on everybody else's behalf. <laughs> um, we live in was, hope. We, we do. We live in hope. Yeah, there was the hope that we would see a lot more green investment. It's just not there. It's just not there. I don't know mm. how else to describe it. It isn't there. The small amounts of tiny amounts on and kind of like environmental investment, minusculely so, especially in comparison to a lot of what we else we've seen. And the other big gap that is in it is actually even in terms of the future predictions that we've got of kind of future economic predictions in which we, we do consider potential outbreaks within China, do consider what's happening with the Russia and Ukraine at the moment. And and we don't talk about climate change. We don't talk about the economic impacts of climate change. It does mention the floods and the economic impacts of the floods, but no economic impacts of climate change. And I cannot understand what has happened in that for it to just be just not – it's barely spoken about really all. They put the $1 billion over nine years towards Great Barrier Reef protection. There's another 60 million, which now we've been talking in in hundreds of billions, and they've got 60 million towards recycling tops and 630 million to a thousand new ranges. It's just, it's actually, it's infuriating. It's disappointing. It's actually, it's upsetting to just see it as this such enormous oversight. And already um, the, the Liberal government has the lowest emissions reduction target of any any of Australia's major political parties. They're already sitting below where we would hope they would be. But when their government has made a commitment to those targets to not even put in place anything for change in the hope of some sort of technological future, which they still have minusculely invested in, it's just, it doesn't make sense. And the gap is so large that there's actually not even much to say about it. Like, no, no, you're right. And eons ago when COP26 happened and Morrison turned up to it with an actual commitment to net zero by 2050 and everyone sat back and went what what price did Barnaby extract for the national sort of grudging acceptance of that particular reality well that chicken has come home to roost with a thud in this budget because the answer was about 20 billion dollars in useless regional investment that's going to do nothing but be used by Barnaby to try and convince people to to re-elect him and his cronies. I mean, we're back to talking about the dams and and you know all, all this other stuff that isn't is not only not going to be effective, but is that going to end up being actively opposed by the people on the ground who are going to be affected by those things. And the fact that, that the government has actually put one billion dollars toward protecting the reef is kind of this grudging acceptance that the reef is actually in danger, which is probably the first hint that they've actually acknowledged that. But it's, you know, they they had this whole, oh, technology, not taxes thing on ad- addressing climate change, yet they're not funding any of the technology research and, and uh, exploration to actually achieve what they claim will happen with technology, not taxes, never mind actually doing anything concrete about addressing climate change. And they're actually increasing their investment in fossil fuels. Yeah. yeah. It's, let's, uh, let's, let's just touch on some of that for a moment. So, you know, we're, we're spending $100 million a year for the next nine years or $112 million a year for the next nine years to protect the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef is estimated as an asset. So this is the budget. So we're going to think about things in economic terms. The Great Barrier Reef is viewed as an asset with a value of about $56 billion. So Deloitte Access Economics, 
estimates the the value of the Great Barrier Reef as an asset to the country about $56 billion. Uh, 64,000 people are directly employed as a result of the Great Barrier Reef, and it contributes $6.5 billion per year to the Australian economy. It is in significant trouble. We had a sixth mass bleaching event just recently, and virtually no part of the Great Barrier Reef was untouched by that bleaching event. So we've got a large driver of regional jobs, regional tourism, regional economic benefit right up and down the east coast of Queensland that comes from the Great Barrier Reef. It is an important environmental asset for the planet, let alone just Australia, beyond its economic value. It is in distress, and that distress has been caused by climate change and and global warming, and our government has committed $100 million a year to help protect it. That's an insult in addition to being grossly ignorant of the scale of the problem. It is an insult to every Australian that that's the kind of money that we would put towards protecting it. We we spend more on on protecting man-made assets than we are talking this it is it is such an insulting amount to spend that there but it's not even the end of the story it's just like one little piece that you pull out of it but it's indicative time and time and time again of the way in which this government over the last nine years has responded to problems which is to do as little as possible in order to say look at what we're doing and then tally it up over the longest period of time that they can get away with to make it sound like a big number, pat themselves on the back for it, take a photo op, have a press announcement, and then ignore it into the future. Like That's, that's no way to govern, and it's, it really is frustrating, but it's also distressing. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that has emerged from the budget, and it's not related directly to the budget, but is this speculation that the government is actually choosing to govern badly? Like it's a deliberate choice on their part, and 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 yeah. I'll unpack it a bit. Yeah, where because because I mean you know people like you and I, people far more ed- better educated and better qualified than the three of us, have been saying for some time now. How is it possible that they're this incompetent? Because you you literally couldn't be this incompetent if you tried, kind of thing. And that sort of opens up the question of well, are they trying to be this, this incompetent? And there is actually a theory emerging now where they are actually trying to be this incompetent, that they are deliberately destroying the trust in government as a, not just a provider of services, but as a, as the thing that, what's the word, um, as, as, as the institution that is supposed to make life better for its citizens. Yeah. And we saw this with the George W. Bush administration in the US. We've seen it with the Trump administration. There's, a, there's actually an amazing thread on Twitter, uh, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, that actually laid it out in, in really startling detail of things that are now endemic in the US where the people who can afford to pay for private firefighting brigades, pay for private police, private security. They're doing all of that because the actual government-funded services are no longer functioning. And we saw a hint of it with the floods in Lismore where the residents of Lismore and, and other areas of New South Wales actually just gave up on expecting any help from the authorities. If 
The people in Lismore had sat back and waited for the authorities to come and, and help them. Thousands of people would have died in those floods. Yes. But they didn't because the people of Lismore just took care of it themselves. Yeah. And there is a theory that that's what the government is basically working toward is, is that this fraying trust in the ability of government to actually deliver for its people. And once that trust goes, then democracy becomes a kleptocracy where the people who can afford to run for office yeah. run for office and then when they're in office, all of their efforts are directed at funneling funds to their donors and to the people, to the corporations and the billionaires who own the government. Yeah. And anyone who, who has the slightest interest in American politics looks mm. at America and goes, like you can already see it, it's quite possible that American democracy is on in, is, is in its death throes at the moment because it's, it's too far gone. Mm. But we're starting to see that emerge in Australia, and that's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a, a notion that our public service should deliver a, a, a level and a quality and a breadth of service that's commensurate with our belief in what the minimum living standard should look like in Australia, and that and that that should be the way that we approach it. I think um, Richard Dennis's recent book, Big: The Role of Government in Australian Society, I think is the full title, but Big sort of asks that question and poses that question, which is what should the size and shape in particular of our public service look like? But I think if we just think about it in terms of our public sector and our public service should ensure the delivery of a standard of living that we want all Australians to enjoy. And that's how we fund and structure our public sector as a minimum thing. You can see the gap that exists between what the public service is able to deliver and what we might want our minimum quality of life to look like for all Australians by looking at the charitable section, charitable industry in Australia, Charities exist to fill the gap, essentially, between our expectation of what that minimum standard of living should look like and the ability of our public sector to deliver on it. Our public sector is shrinking. It's no surprise that that charitable sector is growing. It's one of the faster growing segments of our economy, go figure. But this notion that it's because of a deliberate program of undermining, white-anding, reducing not only the actual ability of our public sector to deliver services, not only in a crisis but always, and a deliberate program of undermining belief and trust in those institutions so that the next round of cuts becomes that much more easy. I think it was um, David Ritter was the, yes, um, the Twitter thread, and I've, I've, I've posted the link in our chat so that it can be shared with our listeners. But it was, it was a very good thread that talks through some of the implications of this and, and points to some of the signs. He, he was sort of coaching it in terms of the East Coast floods that have been going on in Queensland and New South Wales over the last four or five weeks, I guess, and, and looking at the emergency response. But I, I also note that Scott Morrison himself stood up at a press conference just recently and, and made the point quite explicit. People can't rely on and should not rely on government services to be there in an emergency. And I found that an incredibly disappointing point of view for 
the highest representative of our government in this country, the Prime Minister, to stand there and essentially say, we're not even going to try and do that. Ah, you're on your own. Yeah, as, as, as a you know, citizen of the nation that Morrison purports to lead, when he said that, my first thought was, well, literally, what is the point of you then? Like, literally, what is the point of government if not to deliver those crucial services in our hours of need? There's a theme that every billionaire is a policy failure, and it's in, usually trotted out in the context of we should be taxing rich people in order to fund these vital services that government should be providing. But the flip side to that is every charity is a policy failure as well. You know, nobody working in the charity sector actually wants their that sector to thrive and and for them to have long-term career opportunities in that sector, the charity sector is literally working to render itself redundant Mm. because in theory government should be stepping in and providing the services that charities are providing because, as you said, charities are stepping up and providing in the absence of policy, in the absence of those services. I learned that in year 11. So it was in my legal studies class, I found that the best way for me to break down why our legal system has failed us is turn to our non-legal responses, basically. And that consistently our non-legal responses will provide the answer for wherever you have gaps. And what also happened in, particularly I'm I'm thinking about our, our women's statement from this budget, is that a lot of the way of solving these bigger issues was we'll just chuck some money out of charity. There's for the Illawarra Women's Health Centre and there's for the the McGrath Foundation and there's for Beyond Blue or Lifeline and there's the money just chucked at it as opposed to looking at any broader issue or how does our government actually respond to this because that's not your government responding. That is an independent um, organisation doing that. And what it also does there is it does take away the accountability that they have to have over that. That when that money is then given to an independent organisation that is no longer government run, what happens with that money is no longer actually their responsibility. No, we checked it off. We put, we funded that. We put investment into that. What do you mean that it's not working? Well, that must be the organisation's fault. Not that we were missing broader structural issues or that we weren't actually taking action for ourselves. Coming back to the point about billionaires, I think it's wonderful that billionaires exist. I think it's 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 a it's a great thing that billionaires exist. It is a distinct sign of failure as a society when you have both billionaires and people living in poverty. Yeah. That's the sign of failure. Yeah. We, we should not have both of those things. So if you want to have billionaires, then do something to eradicate poverty, homelessness, disadvantage in all its forms, and then knock yourself out with billionaires. Go mm. for it. Go for yeah. it. More power to you. But first, you have to address those structural issues, those structural inequalities, those structural disadvantages, the systemic racism, the systemic gender inequalities that exist that hold down large portions of our society. Deal with those first, and then you can have your billionaires, but not the other way around. And I can guarantee you that the reason you have billionaires is because you're insisting on keeping those structural inequalities in place. Yes, Yes. There's a great tweet that that does the rounds every now and then of when people get to their first billion, we should issue them a certificate going, congratulations, you've won capitalism. Now we're going to tax 100% of what you earn above that billion to then put that into eradicating poverty because... I just want to make mention of the fact that at one point in time, 
there was a tax on the wealthiest. In, so America had a taxation system. It was progressive. Over a certain amount, income was taxed or, or was taxed at 92%. Any mm. dollar that you earned over that amount, 92% of it went to the government and you got to keep 8% of, of anything over and above that amount. I don't know where that amount was, but it was high. It was like 0.1% of income earners would have fallen into that bracket, but 92% of their wealth. There were howls when that dropped to only 70% in the 50s. And I think today it's probably down around 30 or 32% in America. And with it has come a decline in just about every measure of disadvantage and inequality in that country. So just to put a comparison point for Australia, for Australia, approximately as of, as of 2020 but approximately 14% of our population live below the pop, the poverty line so that's three and a half million people Gina Reinhart is worth 15 billion dollars please like could we not take just one bill away would she would she miss one billion dollars and not her specifically it's not about that I you know I, I'm very supportive of you know good on you Gina but if if we're looking at that very, like you said, that 0.1%, are they going to miss the billion that would actually eradicate pop? Would it actually eradicate that poverty line? In, in theory, a lot of other considerations around it, but it, from an economic standpoint and of actually having the value in place there. And, and I, I want to point out the, the Democrats, as a point of policy, have a tax on wealth for estates over $10 million when they're inherited. So when, when wealth is transferred, let's call it that, when wealth is transferred, there is a, a tax of, I think, 2%. I'd have to go and check. It's a small amount. But over the next 10 years, 15 years, something like $2.5 trillion in wealth will be transferred intergenerationally. So as, as one generation passes away, their money passes on. In that process... All of that is tax-free. It didn't used to be. The removal of an inheritance tax in Australia was triggered by Joe Bjorki-Peterson in the early 80s. They took it away in Queensland to try and encourage retirees to move to Queensland so that they could protect their wealth when they, when they passed away. Every other state subsequently folded and removed their wealth tax as well. As a result, the share of national income that sits with income earners has increased the share of wealth or the share of taxation that sits with wealth has virtually disappeared. It doesn't have to be that way. It was a design decision that was put in place. It's one that we want to see returned because otherwise the burden of paying for taxes, uh, the burden for paying for public uh, services sits firmly with workers in a way that today is far out of proportion historically with what we've seen in Australia. Yeah, and before people start clutching their pearls about this, most of the countries in the OECD have a wealth tax of this nature. Yeah, they do. Like Australia is really like an out, like a bizarre outlier on this. Yep, should the be... threshold that we're talking about is out of the reach of even the wildest dreams of most Australians. We're talking mm. about a few tens of thousands of Australian households have wealth that falls into this kind of bucket, and yet it would deliver a significant shift in how our tax is structured. Yeah. The pandemic ripped away 
all the band-aids that had sort of papered over the cracks in terms of inequality and poverty and everything in the country and sort of revealed quite starkly these structural problems that we need to address as a nation and as a society. We really do need to decide as a society what kind of country we want to be. And do we, you know, at the moment we're a country where 14% of us live below the poverty line. And in for a nation as rich and prosperous and successful as Australia, I don't think that's acceptable. I think that's disgusting. That's an absolute failure as a nation. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely possible for zero people in Australia to be living in poverty. It's possible. Mm. It's absolutely a policy choice that we have made or we have allowed to be made on our behalf that there be a group of Australians three million of us at the moment who live in poverty. And what that looks like should embarrass every last person in this country. We just Mm. should not allow it. No. And Frydenberg is currently uh, spruiking the fact that the unemployment rate is going to end up with a three in front of it, which is the first time in 50 years that that's happened. And look, yes, an amazing achievement. Go us. Frydenberg had nothing to, I need to stress, Frydenberg had nothing to do with that. There's, there's a whole range of factors that have contributed to that. What it doesn't address is the fact that the underemployment rate is still sky high. But, you know, there's a probably like 8 to 10% of people who would like more hours and would like to be more, you know, have more gainful employment than, than they're currently getting. But also it reflects, coming back to the whole policy failure thing, it reflects the fact that as a nation, we kept the unemployment rate above 5% for a really, really long time. And as we've said in previous podcasts, that 5% of, of the population are doing an incredibly important service to the nation to keep inflation down, right? And But it they're, means they're, that... They're a sacrifice. Exactly, yes. And it means that the keeping it, you know, unemployment above 5% for as long as we did meant that there were hundreds of thousands of people who could have been employed who who didn't need to be sacrificed and were and we really need to look at at uh, the irony is of course you know it's down to, you know unemployment's down to 3.75% but inflation's currently um, going gangbusters and 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 again the great irony of this government throwing money onto the inflation bonfire and, and sorry I'm not an economist so I'm sort of gathering my thoughts here the inflation that we're experiencing is driven by global pressures and global events outside of our control. So Large that's why petrol prices are higher at the moment because yep. of basically because of the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. What the government's choosing to do is drive domestic demand through the roof at the same time as we have external demand and external pressures kicking up inflation in the country. Yeah. It means that the Reserve Bank's going to have to bring forward the interest rate rises that they flagged much, much sooner. And once you start raising interest rates, you think the cost of living is bad now, you raise interest rates, that's going to be, and keeping in mind is interest rates are still at an absolute record low of 0.1%. Once they start increasing those interest rates to combat inflation, cost of living pressures are going to be super painful. Um, you know the other the other thing, sorry, just on um, Scott Morrison's response to cost of living, his solution to the, the housing issues that we currently are seeing, well, we're help you, we'll help you buy a house if you can't afford rent. Just go buy a house. That's no worries. Yeah. Okay. It was just this bizarre out of touch. I, like I just, 
I don't know what the intention – and I think this cost of living rhetoric was this kind of recurring thing and it's the, you know, oh, we're going to help the cost of living, we're going to help the cost of living, giving one-off mm. payments to pensioners and people on welfare and there's there's an investment for, you know, here's also your payments for people on Oz study or um, youth payments – Awesome. Thank you so much. We're helping the cost of living. We're taking down the petrol prices, you know, cost of living, cost of living, cost of living. I don't feel any more secure. I don't think it's actually given any- A one-off payment. You've not answered any security around what is going to happen when the cost of things continues going up and wages don't. And Mm. what was- what happened in their in their predictions was that, and look, those are coming from the Treasury, and so it's not directly. Whilst it is governmental, and I do I do understand they have an influence area. There is kind of a broader mm-hmm. who is providing the predictions. There's a broader kind of that there, but it actually is directly conflicting with the Reserve Bank, where they're going. Well, we're we're actually concerned about whether wages are actually going to go up, and actually we don't see wages going up, and that is where our issue kind of lies. And so what this budget has now done is relied its predictions upon something that I don't. I don't know if it's actually going to be an accurate representation. I suppose that's the power of predictions. But the budget, the um, budget for the last nine years has consistently forecast wages growth above what has actually occurred and above mm. levels that had previously been in um, in, in play. So every mm. every single budget that the coalition has delivered in this in this government over the last nine years, wages have been low. They're predicted to in, increase. And the reality subsequently has been that wages have stayed low. And the following year, they've predicted that wages are going to be high again. Similarly, they've predicted rates of GDP growth that haven't eventuated, and they've predicted levels of inflation that haven't eventuated. This one is no different. There there are exactly the same things in there. What's important is that those predictions are being used to justify the statutory tax cuts coming through. And, and some of the other spending measures. So we don't need to rein back on spending this year because next year GDP growth is going to increase and wages are going to increase. So not only will we have more money in the economy, you'll have more money in your pocket and therefore we don't have to worry about actually cutting back on expenditure and we don't have to worry about doing things that might change our, our position on tax cuts. It's a fantasy and they do it every single year. And I think the juxtaposition of giving pensioners and, and people on social security payments a one-off $250 payment to help with the cost of living when we have legislated tax cuts for high-income earners that will return nine thousand over $9,000 a year yeah. to the highest-income earners it in the country. It costs $15 billion a year to begin. Yeah, yeah. We could spend $15 billion on lifting people out of poverty. During the pandemic, when we were looking at the increase in the job seeker rate and the age pension rate and the disability pension rate, there was an estimate that was made that to increase each of those so take all of those people and increase them up to the Henderson poverty line, which instead of $43.57 a day is about $88 a day at the moment. So effectively doubling their payments, and, and which was done during the pandemic as, a, as an economic stimulus measure, to make that permanent would cost the budget about 12 to $13 billion a year. If we took the money that we're giving to the highest income earners, two-thirds of which are men, and instead we paid it to those benefit recipients, not only could we do that, but we would have change. 
we would have mm. a few billion dollars left over. We would effectively lift 700,000 to a million Australians to the poverty line, to take them out of poverty in, in one fell swoop. We would not give money, you know, $9,000 a year. We would not give that money to high income earners mm. and we'd have change. That, that type of grand gesture, that idea of we're going to do something significant with our money rather than pay it off to donors and, and voters mm. is completely lacking. But there, once again, is that sense of a wasted opportunity, a lack of vision, a lack of clarity around the type of country that we want to be living in as evidenced by where we choose to spend our money. And I think a really important point is that two-thirds of high-income earners are men, probably two-thirds of the people living in poverty and who are on social security, I refuse to call it welfare because it is a, it is a, it's not, it's social security, are women. There's a brilliant podcast out recently from the Policy Forum pod on women and, but women and and social security and how it's, how misogynistic and sort of almost designed to keep them in poverty and keep them disadvantaged, it is. And again, that's a discussion for another time. But I'll put a link to the the show notes in that if people want to go and listen to that. It, it comes back to again how this government sees the role of women, sees the the role of caring in society, and how they value it, or, or more to the point, how they don't value it. And that twelve or thirteen billion dollars that we could invest in living pe- lifting people out of poverty would be one of the greatest economic drivers that this country has seen for decades. And instead, we're looking at investing $15 billion in giving high-income earners who are mostly men a tax cut, which they will then not spend. They will save. They will put into their superannuation. They'll do whatever. Yeah, or spending Um, it on infrastructure that probably won't get built or spending it on dams that won't deliver any benefit. The lowest income earners by percentile, it's about a 60-40 split women to men. Parity is around, where is it? Uh, Parity kicks in around the 45th percentile. Wow. So it's only it's only when you get there that you start to see parity in terms of that income band between men and women. And then from then on in, it shifts towards men to the point where in the highest income band, 99th percentile, 100th percentile, it's it's firmly, it's actually closer to three to one Jeez. men to women. In the highest income bracket, 82%. Out of 110,000 income earners in the top tax bracket, which is $350,000 a year and above, 82,000 are men, 28,000 are women. Bloody hell. It's really stark, isn't it? Yeah. Cool. Well, on that happy note. In in summary, let me me just say this was was a, a blatant attempt to buy votes. It was a blatant attempt to not annoy anybody in particular. It is riddled with not enough to have an impact, but just enough to be able to say we're doing something. It is full of distortions in terms of the amount of money that is being spent by packaging things up over a much longer period of time to be able to announce a large pot of money. In some cases, those announcements include amounts of money that don't appear until after the forward estimates. So there's almost no money being spent during the next period of government, and it's only miraculously at some point beyond 
the next administration that we start to see money for these things. We're not addressing any structural issues. We're not addressing structural issues with the age pension. We're not addressing structural issues with superannuation. We're not addressing the minimum wage. We're not addressing social benefits. We're not addressing the uh, pay equity and, and gender gap. In our economy, we're not addressing the fact that most unpaid work and most care work is both undervalued and uh, delivered by women. Like None of that is being addressed. We're not addressing climate change. It's a, it's a waste. It's a $650 billion waste in an attempt to stay in power to achieve three more years of not very much. Yeah. The, the redoubtable Ross Gittin said that budgets are inherently political because obviously they're delivered by politicians and economists accept that when they look at budgets. But the reality is even though budgets are political documents, they do impact the nation's finances and they impact the nation as a whole. And this is the most political of of budgets that I I think most economists have seen for a really, really long time. And that kind of says everything, doesn't it? This is only my second budget since being a, a legal voter. Do you leave every year disappointed? Is that is that the nature of it? Pretty much, yeah. I, I don't. <laughs> I certainly have been disappointed over the na- last nine years. I think this coalition yep. government has characterised its budgets by a small-mindedness, a pettiness, a meanness. Mm. It demonstrates a dislike for the elderly, a dislike for the unemployed, a dislike for students, a dislike for the infirm, anyone with a disability, it doesn't seem to like. There's a lot of people in the population that it expresses its dislike for by the way in which it funds various programs. And you can see it year on year on year. Joe Hockey in his first budget was Mm. awfully mean-spirited in the way in which funding was allocated, and it really hasn't changed all that much since. Mm. It hasn't always been that way. There definitely have been times when you look at the budget, you look at where money has been spent. The federal government response during the GFC was a much more productive and optimistic use of far less money. It left a legacy across our schools, right, like nationwide. A lot of the school halls that you see existing in in public schools around the country are a result of that kind of nation building uh, expenditure. It was an investment in something that would have quite tangible, long-lasting benefits right across the public school system in Australia. We just haven't seen that kind of thing over the last nine years. And it comes with a great sense of not only disappointment, but a lost opportunity. And we we will look back on this nine-year period as a period of, of real loss for the country, not only in terms of going backwards in so many measures right across the economy, right across society, we seem to be going backwards relative to other countries, but also as a lost opportunity of where we spend our money, how we invested it, and the waste that has come from that. So, well, hopefully next year's budget. We won't have to wait until next year. I don't oh, no, you're right. We, I yes. don't think we'll have to wait for next year. So Jim yes. Chalmers and Albany, uh, Anthony Albanese have both said a Labor government will deliver a new budget. We're not going to get stuck with this one. We'll legislate the flash of money because people could do with it. Absolutely. You've mismanaged things so badly. People do need that relief. But when it comes to how that money is going to be spent on those big ticket items, how much we invest in a variety of different things, 
we're going to scrap this and redo it. Right. Okay. So budget nerds, you need to live in hope that we get a we'll Labor be, government. We'll be, in, in- we'll be back in June with a, a, a Labor a Labor version of this podcast. And we'll see, Rhiannon, whether or not budgets are necessarily disappointing or whether they can in fact be an inspiring look at what our nation might become. And if all goes well, that some familiar faces might be even closer to, to the action. I, I hope to be very, very closely involved <laughs> in in the next budget cycle, although I will say the budget is likely to be delivered in June. And even if we're successful at the next election, we won't take our seats in the Senate until the 1st of July. So we may miss out on the oh, fun, but sad. if that's the case, guaranteed we'll be here. We will have more news on all of that very, very soon. As I said at the end of the last podcast, we'll have some new Democrats' voices for people to listen to very, very shortly. We're looking forward to introducing all of our candidates to our listeners very, very, very soon as, as in the lead up to the elections. So, so much to look forward to. So thank you guys so much for coming along, sticking your budget nerd hat on, doing yet another autopsy. And if we're lucky, we'll get to do another one in a few months' time. It's going to be great. More stuff to look forward to. Thank you both. Thank you, guys. My thanks, as always, to Rhiannon and Steve for their insights, and hopefully the next budget will be less disappointing for young people. It was only in editing that I realised we hadn't touched on the fact that there was no money in the budget for a federal ICAC, which, let's face it, is not surprising. But it's still an egregious election promise not kept. The government would probably argue that they put no money in the budget for an integrity commission because Labor wouldn't support it. And then Labor would point out that they don't support the government's proposed integrity commission because it seems designed to hide corruption not investigate it, and around and around we go. The other area that saw no love in the budget was, unsurprisingly, the arts. After two years of pandemic-induced catastrophe for live performances, the government has slashed funding for arts and cultural development from $159 million down to $20 million, demonstrating their absolute contempt for an industry still recovering from the loss of audiences and income over the last two years. I've put links to big the new book by Richard Dennis that Steve referred to in the show notes, as well as links to all our campaign platforms so you can see what we would fight for if we were in the parliament when the next budget is handed down. If you want to help us return to parliament in the imminent federal election, apart from voting for us in the Senate, you can donate to our election campaign. We do not receive taxpayer funding and we have no large corporate donors. All of our funding is from our members and supporters. So every dollar will count to help us return to Parliament and keep the bastards honest. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.